And as we open the word of God, let us pray. In the midst of all that we bring to this place, we ask, Lord, that you come to us, that you speak to us. Your words are life to us. You are indeed the one in whom we live, move, and have our being. We just ask, Lord, that you send your spirit so that our ears may be tuned to your voice. Our hearts respond to, what, to your love and our minds understand as we seek to discern your way. In Jesus we pray, amen. We'll be reading from Numbers, Numbers chapter 13, we'll begin reading at verse 17, and we'll go through chapter 14, verse 12. Listen for the good news of the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and be prepared for God's word to change you and challenge you to disturb you, and to comfort you. Chapter 13 begins with Israel standing at the edge of the promised land and Moses sending out some people to 12 people, one from each tribe, to go look at the land. And we won't go through all the names. We'll just start at verse 17. Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. I'm reading the NSRV, by the way. And said to them, go up from there into the Negev, and go up into the hill country, and see what the land is like, and whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether there are few or many, whether the land they live in is good or bad, whether the towns they live in are walled or unwalled or fortified, and whether the land is rich or poor, or whether there are trees in it or not, be bold, bring some of the fruit of the land. Now it, it was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land, from the wilderness of Sin to Rehob to Labo-Hamath. And they went up into the Negev and came to Hebron, and then Hem, and there are a whole lot of names there, and Heman, and Shishai, and Talmai and the Anakites were there, and Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the, to the Wadi Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes, and they carried it on the pole between the two of them, and they brought some of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called Wadi Eskol uh, because of the cluster that the Israelites cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of Israel, of the Israelites in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. 
And they brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land which you, to which you have sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Yet the people who live in the land are strong, and the towns are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And the, the Amalekites live in the land of the Negev, and the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live by the sea along the Jordan. Just for information, the Hittites were a kingdom that was located at one point, center of it was just in what we call Turkey now. And they uh, were one of the first major conquerors of, uh, the, um, of the land of Israel. Amorites, we know, are, were a constant thorn in the flesh for Israel. And the Canaanites that lived by the sea were probably people that came from the islands of Crete and the like and became the Philistines in the near future. <coughs> But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. And then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against these people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the Israelites an unfavorable report of the land they had spied out, saying, The land that we have gone through as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people we saw in it are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. The Anakites came from the Nephilim. And to ourselves, we seemed like grasshoppers, and we seemed to them, and so we seemed to them. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness, why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become booty. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And so they said to one another, Let us choose a captain and go back to Egypt. And then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly and to the congregation, uh, the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites. And Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephthah, who were among them, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the Israelites, the land we went through as spies was an exceedingly good land. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us to this land and give it to us a land flow, that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not fear the people of this land, for they are no more than bread to us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear. But the whole congregation threatened to stone them. 
Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the Israelites. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they refuse to believe in me, in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them, and I will make you a nation greater and mightier than they. That's as far as we're going to read, but you should realize that there's a couple things that still come that are really important that you should read at home. One of them is this, that Moses intercedes for the people, and as a few other times when Moses interceded, God relents, and they, he doesn't destroy the people. And in fact, he makes two comments. One is, what about what all the nations will think? And the other is a repetition of something that is fundamental in Scripture. And those are the words that we find in verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the parents upon the children to the third and fourth generations, which is a quote from Exodus 34. Um, and so you should be aware of that. And that is repeated numerous times in the Psalms and then again in, um, in other parts of the prophets. Uh, we'll put this here for now. So I call this resilient faith. All of us, at one moment or another, are standing on the edge of things. We see sort of the future, but we don't quite see it. We we know that in the midst of this edge, there is things to be really anxious about, and we are. And at the same time, we need to know that we are going to face a future of change no matter what tomorrow brings. And the question that we constantly face is one of resilience. How will we live? How will we act in faith and in hope? And it was with that in mind that I read this passage at one point, read a commentary from a rabbi, and I thought, this, this is good. We should hear it again. At the Edge. Now, whenever we think of the promised land, we need to understand that the scripture, in the scripture, that is a huge theme that stretches right from the beginning to the end of scripture. In the beginning, we have the Garden of Eden. There we are with God, and then we sin, and then there's a long story in between, and then we get to to the end of the book of Revelation, and we see ourselves in the new Jerusalem, the new creation. 
And in throughout all that time, there is that conversation about the promised land, and we always have two questions. Is this a restoration of the Garden of Eden, or is this a new place called the new creation? And the thing is that there are some profound differences between them. In the Garden of Eden, there's two people. In the New Jerusalem, there's a multitude. It's a garden versus a city. There's one tree, there are many trees. There's marriage. And then in the new creation, according to Jesus, there's no marriage. Things are not going to be, we're going to be like the angels in heaven. But one thing remains throughout that entire imagination about the promise of the promised land. And that is this. We are in the presence of our God. We are united with Christ. Last time I preached here, it was John 17. And um, there you have that, those words uh, that Jesus says, just as I am in the Father and the Father is in me, so you are in me and you are in the Father. And there is this union with Christ. And ultimately, if we look at John 15 as well, we notice that, that union with Christ, being rooted in Christ and living out of that in the love that Christ has is fundamental to who we are as beings. We stand in our unity with Christ. And the promised land is always that destination where we will experience it in our fullness, this union. There's a song that about 20, 30 years ago we sang a little bit more in the church that I was in, and there's a line in there that we are on tiptoe just to see the things of God, on tiptoe just to see the future that God is giving us. It's, well, here we are at the edge of the promised land in Numbers 13. And Moses sends out some spies. He says, check it out. Give us a preview. Now, you know what a preview is because you've seen movies. And there are previews for movies. And usually you, um, you either see a little bit of the preview or something and say, I want to see the rest of that movie. And sometimes the previews, and I'm sure you've had that, sometimes the previews give away the best lines in the entire movie. And you thought, all I had to do was see the preview and that would have been enough. Best lines there, best story other times, the previews are these wonderfully crafted things which want, make you want to see the rest of it, and the rest of it is so much better than the preview. Well, this is a preview. And the preview was designed to give Israel something in their imagination about what God was about to do. Just think of what God can do. What he is giving us, it's, it's going to be great. 
preview. Well, that's what's taking place here. Previews are kind of helpful. They give us a sense of hope. We can get through whatever we're going to have to get through. I do some work with the fire department, and um, one of the things I do is teach some stuff around trauma for the fire department, for the firefighters, mental health stuff. And one of the things we know about trauma is that there's a certain imagination that allows people to survive trauma better than others. And they call it the hopeful imagination. The sense that there's something we can do. Whatever it is that's happening, there's a way through this. And here we are in Israel, and and they're standing at the edge of the promised land, and they're getting a preview, and the question is, do they have this hopeful imagination or not? Well, it seems like we're getting some reports. Now, the reports are interesting. The first one seems a little straightforward. Um, well, we walked through the land, and it was, it was really a good place. Look at the fruit that we got. It's great. Uh, just a little problem that we have, and that is the cities are walled. That's not good. And they're huge people. We Dutch people wouldn't be afraid of that because we're the tallest in the world, apparently. But others would be afraid. (laughs) You wouldn't believe their size. And then comes uh, Caleb and Joshua, and they say, oh, there's not a problem. The Lord will give it to us. And so we have this thing that is laid out before them, and then we start to hear what's in the people's hearts. And that's really interesting. There's a a phrase that I thought was kind of helpful when I first heard it. You know how you have, it talks about memory, and memory being a kind of um, a fabric of some kind that you have. And after a while, what happens is that there are holes in this fabric, and then you have to mend it. You don't remember everything quite the way it was, but you start to mend it, and you mend it, it says, your memory with myth and fable. Well, Israel walked through the promised land. They saw what they saw. At first they tell the ordinary story, and then they embellish it with myth and fable. They talk about the Nephilim. Now, all of you should know exactly where you first heard about the Nephilim. The Nephilim come in Genesis chapter 6. That's before the flood. 
I always say to people, if you, uh, you think it's really easy to talk about the flood and the destruction of everything, and then you get to Numbers 14, and then it talks about the Nephilim, the descendants of the Nephilim, and you say, how did they get there? They were supposed to be killed in the flood. And here's the thing. Whether it is, whether they were actually descendants of the Nephilim is irrelevant. What the Israelites are doing is they're starting to embellish these huge people and saying they're connected to the Nephilim, and the Nephilim were the ones when the, the, the daughters, the sons of God uh, married the daughters of earth, the sons of heaven, that sort of thing. So there was something going on in Genesis 6 which we don't quite understand, but that is the story. So now these are these huge people. We're never going to beat them. <clears throat> They're giants. They're terrible. And not only that, this is the land that devours its people, eats them up. <clears throat> we use that language sometimes. I've heard it used about certain places in the world where it always seems that there's war, where, where the land itself is questionable and the people struggle. It, the land eats them up. I've heard it about organizations, organizations where the leaders are regularly destroyed and the people regularly leave. I've heard it about churches. The land eats them up. That's the kind of sense that Israel is trying to give. <clears throat> and there's a sense of being overwhelmed. And they're dreading it. We, this past week I was talking to our neighbor, and our neighbor has a really, really good uh, hockey player. The daughter is an excellent goalie. She's 14 years old. She was playing with a U-20 team from North America, going to Europe. And then they thought they were going to be doing really, really well. And then they discover that the way in which they talk about U2, uh, U-20 in uh, Europe was entirely different. Uh, one team had mostly Olympians on there. And she's a 14-year-old goalie, and the team is U-20, North American style. No Olympians on there, just good hockey players. She said, we were, we were somewhat overwhelmed. That's the sense of this passage. We are going to be destroyed. And then they start to do this nostalgic thing. It would have been better for us to be in Egypt. Now, Egypt is this wonderful place in, uh, in the ancient uh, Middle East, <clears throat> and it was known as the breadbasket of the entire world at that point. Wonderful place. You could count on having food if you were there. That's why Abraham ended up there. That's why Jacob ended up there. Whenever there was a famine, go to Egypt, they've got food. 
So it's this wonderful place. And the Israelites say, we, we should have just stayed there. <laughs> Let's go back. Now this is nostalgic thinking, you know. Uh, it, the 50s were so much better. The 60s were so much, it was so much better over there. Nostalgic thinking. It's, it's the time when we look at the fabric and we've stitched it with myth and fable and we've forgotten all the parts we wanted to forget. That's what's taking place. They forgot all their slavery, the hardships. But at the same time, they thought, at least we knew what we were getting and we had food on the table. And what's interesting is the way in which they were thinking. If you had lived 200 years later and you were in the promised land and you were doing well, you would remember the story in a different way because you would also remember the story of Rahab. Now, Rahab was another wonderful um, a person and uh, she was in the... It, you know, the, the spies 40 years later went and they came to Rahab. This is what Rahab said. All the people of this land are terrified because they know what God has done. Here, Israel is standing at the edge of the promised land. They said, let's go back to Egypt. They forgot what God has done. And that's fascinating. They forgot. All the things of the past that God has done were holes in their memory. Rabbi Sachs reminds us that seeing is never objective. It's always subjective. When I was doing some work with the police and talking to detectives, they would tell us about how this was reality. You go to an accident scene and you talk to witnesses and they tell you the story of what they saw. <clears throat> and then the policeman or the detective looks around and he stands where this person, so you were standing here. And you saw this, 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 yeah. But well, how could you see on the other side of that hill from here? So you say you saw this, but you really didn't see this. You filled in the gaps of what you saw according to what made sense to you. That's what happens. Our eyes always do that. It's subjective. We see according to what makes sense to us. And the Israelites were seeing according to what made sense to them. That's usual. When we hear a story, we try to figure out what makes sense. We see some stuff, but there's got to be a reason. 
It's got to be connected to something. And we, we try to fill in those gaps, and we see according to what we imagine. And we see this with the spies. The ten spies saw with eyes of fear. They knew exactly what happens when you try as a weak person to go up against the strong. You're going to get creamed and it's not going to feel good. You know that. It's what the eyes were trained to see. And Caleb sees, but evaluates the entire situation differently. He says, no problem. Remember what God has done? He can do it again. And the Israelites, when they are listening, they are saying, oh, this is a problem. Let's go back to Egypt. At least we know what we're dealing with. Who's right when you're standing on the edge? And the question that is here is this. From whom does blessing really flow? Where is our hope? Is it with the God who has done great things in the past? Or is it, is our imagination captured by this particular moment of our fear. Matthew 28 reminds us, I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you. I am for you. You'll be okay. Nothing can remove me from your love, says Romans 8. And we hear this over and over and over again in Scripture. Is anything impossible for our God? I don't know about you. I know about me. Maybe it's just because I'm getting older. But when I look at the life of the church these days, I'm troubled. There's every reason to be troubled. It's not just a particular church, but it's denominations and beyond denominations, the church in general in North America. If you've paid attention you would have noticed not just that the CRCNA had a synod this past June that has caused all kinds of rifts or revealed all kinds of rifts within the denomination. And many, many are talking about the reality that we might split as a denomination. And they have good reason to. Because every denomination that has dealt with the issues of human sexuality in the last 15 years has split. Almost every denomination. There's a few that haven't. The Southern Baptists 
one of the biggest denominations in North America besides the Roman Catholic Church has all kinds of trouble. Why? Well, a lot of things. Scandals within the leadership, other things that have taken place. And part of it we can see is an abuse of power that is rampant within the life of the church. And whether it's particular ministers or organizations within the denominations, you see the abuse of power. And there have been scandals because of it, because of sexual abuse all over the place. And just this past week, I read some people talking about 75% of our youth are leaving the church because. And then they said, well, what are the reasons? Well, my kids tell me, they say, because of the sexual abuse scandals, the abuse of power scandals, because of the divisions within the church, etc., etc. And the list goes on. And you see the divisions. So how do you hear the church? How do you see this edge we're standing on? Is the future that bleak? Or is it not? And churches have to make decisions. And the truth is that not a single church will survive if you are simply depending on the people who are in the church today. Not a single church. And that's hard for us to imagine. All you have to do is do what we call stati- uh, demographic uh, stuff. The people in this church, you've had so many kids. If you're really old, you've had many. If you're young, you probably haven't had as many as the older ones. Uh, you're, the numbers decline. You need to have a 2.2% or 2.2 per woman of childbearing age in order to, uh, um, in order to have the population increase. Uh, most of us in North America and around the world, um, in the dominant countries like U.S., Canada, and Europe, uh, our birth rates are down to 1.7, 1.4 at times in some places, and the population's declining. And you can't keep on declining. And then you take away those who leave the life of the church for other reasons, and you know that in 20 years' time, things are going to be completely different. You know that. Demographics. It's not that hard. Churches are going to survive because of the people who are not here, who have come from other places of the world, who have, who have become Christians. That's why. And it's hard for us to imagine that. But when we look at the future, do we trust God or do we not? Is anything impossible for our God? Caleb saw through eyes of faith. United with God, 
part of the covenant remembers the things which God has done, how his life is caught up with God, says this is not impossible because we are united with Christ. And this is fundamental to who we are. In Christ, in every age, the church has been troubled. And in every age, the church has survived. Why? Not because of the church, but because of the God of the church. Every age. God will lead us to a good place. Yeah, the things against us are mighty, but what God has done and what God can do and will do is greater than all these things. Frederick Beekner writes about, he calls it, um, he says at one point, a good joke catches you by surprise. God is like that, surprises us. Who would have guessed that of all the nations of the world, of all the peoples of the world, God would choose Abraham and Sarah to become the people of his destination, of the future. Who would have guessed? And who would have guessed that Sarah would have a child in her old age? Who would have guessed? Even Sarah says that's unbelievable and starts to laugh. And then Beekner says, whenever God tells a joke, It's you who thrive and laugh and experience the joy of the Lord because God surprises you. When the devil tells a joke, the joke's always on you. And he may be laughing, but you're not. And I think that's a kind of an interesting way of imagining it. Now that phrase Nothing is impossible for God is mentioned three times in Scripture. Three times. The first time is with Abraham and Sarah. Sarah laughs, and God looks over to Abraham and says, "Um, So Sarah's laughing. How come she's laughing? Is there anything impossible for God? The second time it's used is when Israel is in exile or going into exile and the prophets say, you're going to come back to this land in 70 years. And the people are thinking to themselves, 70 years? It was only 40 years in the desert and there was a whole new generation that rose up and they're the ones that came to the promised land. Now 70 years, that's like twice that. It'll be our grandchildren, not our children. Really, God, you've got to be kidding. God says, I'm not kidding. Is anything impossible for God? The third time is when Mary, and when the angel talks to Mary and announces that Jesus is going to be born. She says, how's that going to be? Not married yet. Don't have a husband. Never had sex. How's that going to happen? And the angel says, is anything impossible for God? 
Every time is anything impossible for God. And when faced with a huge army, and God wanted to make that point, Gideon has to reduce his meager, poorly, the poorly armed uh, army to 300 people. And Gideon is saying to himself, really, God? Is this how things are going to be? And God says, is anything impossible for God? What God has done. Caleb has resilient faith because he knows where his hope is. It's not in the strength of his arm or the might of his armaments. It's in the God who holds him. And we know that God himself has come to live among his people. And we know that we who are his people are united with God. And our hope is this, that the love of God which drew us together will never forsake us, never leave us. And nothing is impossible for our God. Our future is this, that we are united with our God deeply and powerfully. There is hope for us, for the church. Our imagination has to capture this God who has done great things, and nothing is impossible for the God, and even giants can be defeated. Let us pray. Lord God, in the midst of this time, when our eyes see many things which trouble us and disturb us, our eyes look to you. And our hope is in you. And we know that you are the God who can draw us into a deeper fellowship with you. And our hope will we'll make the future a land of the promised land. Because you are there. And we are in your presence. So come, Lord Jesus, among us. Fill us with your spirit and give us a resilient faith that could stand the darkness and enjoy the light that is in you. In Jesus we pray, amen.